This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones of From the Depths of Hell. And joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Lever. And even Mr. Stephen Palmer, even. Hello, Edward. Thanks for having me again. Now, obviously, on tonight's show, we are going to be looking at um, a film by Sion Sonom, which is the uh, 2007... I'm, gonna, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correct. Uh, Ext or hair extensions as it was known in the states yeah i think it's i think it's xd hair extensions that'll do okay because we're obviously talking about sion sonna we're going to be going into a little bit of a capsule history of the director and who many people are seeing as taking over from takashi Miike uh when it comes to being the outlaw director of choice but before we obviously get into all that, I think it's we have to start with obviously a bit of sad news because over here in the UK, uh, one of the first and major online disc distribution agencies or disc rental companies, whatever way you want to call them, uh, Love Film have called time on their actual physical media side of things. They were previously their own entity, then they got bought up by Amazon and started doing their streaming through what's now obviously essentially Amazon Prime, but they were still doing the discs on the side. And now they've decided that physical media is no longer the way they wish to go, and they've uh, called time on the whole thing, which I don't know about anyone else, but for myself it's kind of sad, especially when you're a fan of of specialist sort of cinema, should we say. So anything like foreign or cult and uh, obscure sort of cinema. So like... The films that we obviously see through labels such as like Fair Window Films or Arrow Films, these are going to be like titles that are going to be a lot harder to obviously access uh, because they don't tend to turn up too often on like Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime sort of the streaming services. So I have to ask David. I mean, you. I mean, I have to ask David. Are you obviously? Uh, as sad by me as the end of another end really for physical media i mean first it was obviously blockbuster and the mom and pop stores and now the online uh rental stores are obviously going as well yeah i mean for me i don't really rent anymore um but love film were the first sort of people i use to 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 get physical you know rent physical films online so like say after the after the death of blockbuster i did go love film and i had things from them and actually there are films that we will talk about which i could only get through love film yeah. um i i assumed that you know it, it was it was eventually going to end once they got bought by amazon it just feels physical media i wonder where it'll be in 10 years time other than just for people like me and probably you who who still need the tactile ownership of something that we like um but the generation maybe after us aren't so attached to that and they're quite happy to have everything at their fingertips through streaming yeah i mean it's i think the main reason we like to have something a disc to hold some uh, tactile media 
uh, is purely because of the fact that we ain't going to see these films any other way. And when we look at companies such as Arrow, and in particular we look at uh, their recent... Say, for example, we take a look at the release for um, Female Prisoner Scorpion, which they put out in a lovely box set, and, of course, limited to what about... Should we say about 200,000 copies or something? It was like a very small run that they did. And then that's it. I think it was 4,000. I think it was even lower than that. Yeah, I mean, it's just... They put out these small little numbers. And at the same time, they just get bought up. And then the only way you get to then try and pick them up is if you're going the trader route. Who obviously then try and rip you off. I mean, when we look at Battles Without Honor and Humanity, that lovely sort of set that was sort of like their first test run for these, um, that was returned about 50 quid. It's now going, looking on Amazon, we're looking about 110 minimum that you can expect now to pick up that set for. And I think it's just absolutely ridiculous. And another reason that old traders should be shot. But, you know, that's just me. And there is no alternative really of how are we supposed to obviously see and watch these films i mean obviously arrow have got like a little bolt-on channel that you can add on to amazon prime but again it's a very small selection of their quite epic uh catalog of films that they have i mean they essentially took over word heart and left off uh in many ways the when you look at the sort of breadth and selection that they have um, and it's just a shame that they've not gone and created some sort of decent sort of streaming service. I mean, we obviously, what are our options really? I mean, we get, we get, we can get bits of Shaw Brothers on Amazon Prime. We can get uh, various Salvation dramas on Netflix. Um, we buy again when it's not just so focused on Hard House. We occasionally get some uh, Asian cinema filled through there, but there's no no seemingly service uh, dedicated to Asian cinema which is I think what we need we need something because at the moment when we look at the streaming services for Asian uh, cinema it's mainly anime so things like Crunchyroll or High Five yeah so I think you know you you hit the nail on the head there with with Arrow because actually some of their stuff is available on Amazon Prime other bits are on iTunes um, in terms of, in terms of rent, you know, and some of it somewhere else. Um, and I think that's the problem I have with the streaming services is is the is to to get a decent selection, you might have to pay three, four different monthly subscriptions. I mean, iTunes is still sort of parental. Yeah, I don't think they. Well, I don't. I think it's only the music they have in the in the streaming way, but it, but they'll be there soon. And that's the. That's the struggle for me is that, you know, we used to be able to go to Blockbuster and there would be a wide enough selection. Yeah, we I used to, you know, we used to get something from Love Film and there'd be a wide enough selection. The the challenges of licensing and things like that really make the, the streaming services as good as they are. Now the Internet's getting better I and mean, the Internet. Hit, I've got fine Internet. I don't really have a problem with streaming, but. How many streaming services do I have to sign up for? Now there are, if in Asian cinema in particular, there are Chinese services that can be got here, and quite often have um, UK uh, British subtitles. So there there are options, but it's 
it the legality is dubious <laughs> for one and you know not not everything is actually viewable so so it it's, it just feels like sometimes things feel like a natural monopoly, don't they? And I think I think sort of specialist cult cinema might be part of that. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's uh, at the moment it's only becoming all the more rewarding to go out and do sort of like crate digging and uh, going to like secondhand uh, sort of stores, so things like Entertainment Exchange or your cash converters. These. Uh, sort of stores where people go and trade in their old DVDs and stuff because more often than not <laughs> you'll find that uh, your foreign cinema section will have some really great titles that have been sold off pretty damn cheap uh, mainly because oh, ab- they don't assume there's anyone going to yeah. buy them um, no my 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 go to place is, is CEX yeah um, and yeah, so any time I find one, and some of them have a magnificent world cinema, and and sometimes even a specification cinema section. I mean, it does. I guess it depends who lives there. And yes, there's only so many copies of Crouching Tiger or Cashern that you might want, but sometimes <laughs> there's absolute bargains. Or you, you know, as you say, you go to a boot sale or something like that, and you find some old Hong Kong legends DVDs from the day. So that's that's part of the fun of of the hobby to a degree. Um, but you. But you, you know, you're right. It's it's an end of an era, really. It's a yeah. It's a sad time, I feel, and and I think it, I think only one when this sort of sinks in that I think people are going to realise what we've obviously lost through the end of physical media rental. Um, it's, it's it's an important avenue that I feel that that we've uh, obviously lost uh, there, and I feel that it's, it's it's been a bit it's been a bit of a sad day to obviously learn of. Uh, the actual end of Love Films uh, physical rental, but um, on the plus side, we did uh, find some a couple of good finds with the crate digging. As I managed to pick up a copy of Turtles: The Surprisingly Fast Swimmers, um, so you'd be happy to know, Stephen, someone was actually listening to your recommendation. So, oh, I really hope you enjoy it. I'm feeling it's going also to turn up. Copy chore, which <laughs> you might be hearing about in a in a in a in a fairly fairly soon episode so that was that was very good and of course as you know um i actually managed to use ebay to get a copy of the aforementioned blu-ray set of um female prisoner scorpion this month and even though every other copy that i'd seen was going for as you say 60 70 100 pounds i put in a punt and actually got it for less than the retail but that that is you know that that's once in a lifetime and now it's you know now I'm hugging it a lot and <laughs> enjoying its very existence because it's a lovely set with you know with with the, with the Blu-ray with the four films Blu-ray and DVD and a nice little book, but I I'd set my financial limit on it and it it, it was just one of those times that it came through. But uh, I'm pretty sure ninety-nine times out of a hundred I wouldn't have been winning that one. Yes, I mean I'm still waiting for the Criterion uh, Criterion collection version of uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub series, which again is a really lovely transfer and a lovely box set as well. Uh, whether it will actually make it over here or not, I'm not too sure because Criterion's current deal with their UK distribution is that they won't release a title which has distribution through someone else. They only release titles to the UK that don't already have a distribution deal. So... Once again, distribution confusing a lot of things, it has to be said. Um, 
On other notes, uh, we've seen more footage from the latest Jackie Chan uh, romp, The Foreigner, based on the Steel Leather book, The Chinaman. And in this, it seems that they're actually going with the actual literal title, because in the book, the so-called Chinaman is actually an ex-Viet Cong soldier. Uh, Obviously, in the Jackie Chan version, he will actually be a Chinaman. But... We've seen some footage, and it's certainly showing Chan tapping into that darker side again, uh, which we've seen hints of. I mean, we obviously saw it in, like, The Protector. We saw, uh, and we've seen it in some of, like, his later films. Normally, when he was, like, doing uh, Police Story Lockdown, we saw him trying to tap it again into that darker style and moving away from the more comical stuff. So it's been kind of interesting and actually been really infused about the footage we've seen released from the film i mean are you excited to see uh to see the foreigner um i couldn't be less excited <laughs> okay <laughs> um no no obviously jackie jackie chan has his fans um uh, i haven't enjoyed anything he's done for uh, the last thing i really enjoyed actually was the karate kid <laughs> um the, the remake that he was in which was a which I thought was quite an interesting film, but I think he's a bit old for this action crap these days. And um, I'd rather he grow gracefully or, or, or China bought us someone new, which I think is a debate and a discussion <laughs> and a lamentation all of its own, isn't it? It's hard to say who the next person step up. I mean, obviously at the moment we've got uh, Donnie Yen is finally getting the recognition. He, he he's long since deserved. I mean, I thought back when we saw Blade 2 that that would be a sort of breakout and it's sort of taken until now for for us to obviously recognise Donnie Yen and him obviously turning up in Rogue One um, and he's been in the latest XXX as well. So it's nice to see him doing projects over here at the same time he's still really busy doing films in Hong Kong. So um, it's great obviously seeing that. But it's not getting but he's not getting any younger, is he? I mean, he's a... I don't know, but he's only getting better. That's the thing we've done yet. <laughs> certainly his acting is. Certainly um, certainly, he was a bit of a a joke, really. <laughs> and in terms of his, his acting, you know, his, his, obviously his fighting and his uh, uh, choreography was always well-respected, but his acting wasn't necessarily as uh, as well thought of, but he mm. certainly turned a corner there, for sure. But what we don't... I just I don't feel, certainly out of that part of the world, we have young, fresh talent. It's it, There's a lot of pretty boys that won't make it over here, um, certainly in terms of martial arts and action cinema. I, I don't see anybody. There's... You know, we have Tony Jaa from Thailand, who I suspect his days come and gone... Um, we have the fella from Indonesia um, was in the raid and stuff like that. I can't remember his name. He wastes. Um, but it's yeah, it, it, you know, there was a time we could talk about the golden age of various cinemas in Asia, and there would be lots of male action stars, and you yeah. could have your favourites. Now it's 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 a very it's a very empty desert. I think the only person I can think of uh, would be Daniel Wu, who's currently heading up uh, the AMC series Into the Badlands. Yeah, yeah. So, um, funnily enough, though, I never think of Daniel Wu as a um, as a martial artist. A, a, a martial artist. Um, I mean, he's a, I mean, he's been around for quite some time. So he was quite a face of sort of the late nineties and early 
2000s in Hong Kong cinema. Um, and, and actually, I, I really, I really like Daniel Wu, so I'm really, I'm really pleased that he's managing to headline the the, the Into the Badlands show. Yeah, and I mean the, I mean another throwback uh, artist who seems to have really come back into vogue again, and that be uh, Mark Dacakos. Who's he? I'm... He was, um, he was in the original version of Drive. Uh, he was in Crime Freeman. He's currently, he was in uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Manny. Yeah, I know who you mean, yeah. Um, And it's really weird because obviously there's like one half uh, who, uh, of the the viewing audience, who obviously know him as the Iron Chef in America. And then there's all these sort of like genre cinema fans who know him as a martial artist. Um, And obviously doing, as we said, he was in Crime Freeman. He was in some slightly less great stuff such as like Double Dragon and Kickboxer 5 The Redemption but you know he's he's uh seems to have really come back to the forefront again and when he's obviously doing stuff on uh like a Y5O and stuff it's sort of like you can see him like slowly getting more and more lead roles again and it's nice to see him moving away from B sort of movie foot of uh B movie material and finally getting some proper proper recognition which is probably long over overdue really yeah 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 i mean absolutely anyone anyone showing their face is good um but it's, it's this it's this paucity of youth that bothers me and um i know i just wonder in the next 20 years is someone going to break over but that's not um you know it's that constant story isn't it in terms of directors in terms of actors who is going to break the west and will it be some? Will it be maybe somebody from South Asia rather than Southeast Asia? Um, so there's been people like Priyanka Chopra, who's who's obviously made a big splash on American TV and cinema, but um, you know it's fingers in one hand when there's a billion people that rep- that are represented by them. You know, well you kind of help but wonder as well, especially with Hollywood and China now in their working relationship. Are we obviously going to start? Is this going to encourage us to see? A new revival, interest within what the in that sort of more traditional what we seem to be like a more traditional style of Hong Kong cinema. Um, I'm very curious to see what who's obviously going to now start coming across into the mainstream as the result of this relationship. Um, but I mean, let us know on the uh, Facebook page. We uh, have obviously got the Facebook page go. Um, which is the Asian Cinema Film Club. If you look us up, uh, click like. Let us know what you think, or let us know in the comment sections below whether you listen to this on Podomatic or iTunes or uh, maybe over at our home base, uh, thatmomentin.com. Let us know wherever you happen to be listening to this, uh, who you think the next sort of breakout star for Asian Cinema is going to be. I mean, certainly love to, uh, to hear. Um, now, obviously... Tonight we're talking about Sion Sono. This is a director who I would say sort of like the last few years has really sort of come to the forefront and through films such as like Why Don't You Play in Hell, Tokyo Tribe, uh, Coldfish. He has sort of like picked up that mantle as we said at the start of the show from Takashi Miike is producing the sort of films that were reminiscent of his outlaw period that basically led the Hawaiian invasion of like the early 2000s when he was like doing films such as like Dead or Alive and Audition and Ishii the Killer um, and 
Same when we put it up on the Facebook page, we were talking about this film. Uh, there were several people who got really excited about it. In particular, David Brooke of the Blueprint Review, who cited both like the film we're going to discuss this evening and Suicide Club um, as being personal favourites of him. But, I mean, where did you get the introduction to Sion Sonic? What was your first introduction to him, Stephen? Well, my personal introduction to him would have been through Suicide Club Stroke Suicide Circle. So as part of the J-Horror Boom, you know, you, you find out about Ringu and Audition and then you start finding about other things and you start going to websites dedicated to Asian cinema and actually, in my case, particularly horror cinema. And then there was this story, oh, there's this film that's... Um, it opens with 54 schoolgirls committing suicide on the train and 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 so you hunt it down but and i you know I, I imported it from japan at the time um and was given you know a movie with that and actually what i ended up doing was getting really quite interesting in this guy because he's very different you know absolutely that I, I i can absolutely see the linkage between him and takashi mikey in terms of the amount the, the amount and the varied nature and quite often crazy shit that they do in terms of their output but they actually come from a completely different place um so it's suicide circle first and then it was actually some of his later films were which maybe I'll talk about in a moment that, that I got interested in then went back and looked at the stuff which went on between Suicide Circle <laughs> and that and then now of course now his output is uh, Mikey levels uh, Mikey's most uh, uh, rampant I suppose <laughs> yeah I mean for myself I mean it was guilty of uh, um, guilty of romance that sort of brought me in and love exposure and I had no idea who he was at all. I didn't even make the link between um, between him and directing Suicide Club. I mean, obviously, I'd heard of Suicide Club, and in particular, obviously, that, that whole train sequence, which I think it was just, like, one of the most discussed sort of scenes for people who had obviously come into rediscovering, like, Asian cinema through, like, The Ring and Battle Royale, and it seemed like Suicide Club was, like, the next... Uh, film that everyone suddenly wanted to talk about but yeah it was Love Exposure and then I happened to stumble into Cold Fish again not realising it was the same director and from there it's obviously been filmed like that double header of Why Don't You Play in Hell and Tokyo Tribe and it was those two films in particular I just absolutely fell in love with his his work as a director Um, I think Why Don't You Play in Hell is probably one of my favourite films the last couple of years that I've seen Um, it's just so colourful and energetic and fiercely original and he, like Mikkei, he's able to somehow combine scenes of graphic violence and somehow make it seem incredibly plausible which is uh, no easy feat especially when you look at the countless splatter titles that are certainly available within Asian cinema so yeah um, his, so, so so maybe if I just give the audience a little potted yeah. history of Sono so and I'll lose it we'll start off because I think the Mikey comparison is is actually valid I'd normally sort of go oh no but no this is absolutely valid but Mikey came from basically I think it came from school and fell into cinema rather than studying it and acted as a I think like an assistant director somewhere or or sort of probably made the cups of tea first then worked his way up then worked his way up through v cinema sort of which is sort of straight to video cinema in japan and then eventually became the the juggernaut and even the mainstream guy he is now sono came at it from a slightly different way sono actually started off life as a poet 
and his his life backstory his early years is is fascinating um he he joined a cult um <laughs> he joined as a, you do. Made, yeah which as as you've probably realized probably has informed quite a lot of his certainly his earlier work um He's a published, recognised poet. Um, his film started making gay porn. Um, and then a lot of his early films, uh, I'm not going to confess, I haven't seen many of them, but they're, they're, they're very much sort of art projects, half-formed ideas. And it's quite strange the way that Suicide Circle became popular um, because up to then he wasn't known outside of Japan at all, and he was probably a, an irrelevance outside of the real film schools art art circles. This was like in two thousand and one, and and you know it was it was it was a just off the moment, wasn't it? It was a zeitgeist sort of film. It just hit that J horror wave and got him noticed, certainly in the in that in sort of those, those horror circles. Um, he followed it up with a whole bunch of other films. Uh, most of which haven't seen the light of day over here. Um, more notable ones might be Noriko's Dinner Table, which is actually a prequel to um, Suicide Circle of a sort. It's it's talking about the same cult. It's a much quieter, more standard fare. Um, then he gave us a Strange Circus, which is uh, quite a disturbing drama full of incest and... <laughs> Mikey-liked themes. Um, and then, I suppose, 2007-2008, there's XD, the film we're talking about tonight, so I won't spoil that. But his signature film, 2008, was Love Exposure, a four-hour epic about cults and panty shots and um, religion, and it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm on record. I, I've struggled with films over an hour and a half to two hours long and the fact that i could sit there and watch four hours of that madness and absolutely enjoy it um the shows you where he suddenly shot up as a director um love exposure is considered part of a trilogy his hate trilogy with um cold fish which you, you spoke about sort yeah. of story of a aquarium owning serial killer and then the rather fabulous guilty of romance in which uh a woman's affair takes a well she slide into prostitution but it, they're quite complicated films and they sort of they're considered part of the whole even though i think they're quite different films um he then made a couple of films himazu and the land of hope which take their inspiration that they're, they're more like dramas one of them's almost like a documentary in, in its way it's filmed um inspired by the uh 2011 tsunami that hit japan and the uh, fukushima nuclear meltdown and then he came to another period of incredible um uh, output so you've talked about why don't you play in hell which actually was an old old script he dusted off and i'm not a huge fan of it because i don't i think it's a bit backwards looking but it's mad as a bag of ferrets um story of a yakuza gang making a film it's meta as hell um and it's it's crazy um he dabbled in a tv show um the, the virgin psychics that's then made into a movie the, he created the rap musical tokyo tribe uh, at, 
adapted from a manga as we spoke about last week um we've got shinjuko swan love and peace um the soon to be released over here tag which is a meta commentary on schoolgirl horror um which is pretty good then an incredibly lo-fi science fiction film called the whispering star which i'm I really hope gets a release over here because it just shows that he can actually tone it down and work at a really low, quite um, emotional, quiet level. It's a sort of a, it's a lot shorter, but think of it as a as a, as a Japanese version of Solaris in a way. Okay, um, I have to yeah. obviously ask. I mean, do you think that? What do you think the chances are that uh, the Whispering Stars distribution would get screwed up like Snowpiercer? So. We're still waiting for Snowpiercer here in the UK. I know there's a lot of American listeners who don't believe that, can't believe that the fact we haven't seen Snowpiercer, but yes, we are still waiting for that movie to come over here. If you'd asked me this a couple of weeks ago, I'd said the chances are nil. However, Tag, like I say, Tag got a has got a release and it's out before the end of the year. Love and Peace came out, I think, through Third Window. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the audience would be, <laughs> but... I think there is a possibility. If there is anything we'll see next, it will probably be anti-porno, which is um, he's one of a number of directors who've been inspired to work on a project inspired by the Roman porno pinko films. Um, so he's done one called anti-porno, which has been quite well reviewed. That will probably be the next one that comes out. But they keep on going, and I believe... This year, if it's not out already, he's actually done a, a series for Amazon, Tokyo Vampire Hotel. So his his grasp reaches ever more. But from a from from a not a filmmaker at all to experimental to crazy batshit Mikey like stuff to very serious dramas to absolutely random output, the guy is absolutely one of the the premier artistic forces in japanese cinema yeah i mean it's interesting the fact obviously he's been picked up by amazon to do an original series as you said with tokyo vampire hotel um whether he obviously chooses to stay and work uh, sort of work in both territories remains to be seen i mean we've obviously seen other directors come over and they do one or two projects and then they just don't like the way that the system works in the west and just go back uh, and essentially we return to the the homelands and uh, often in the case of like John Woo return as these champion heroes I mean John Woo most legendary came over and he started off well I mean he did Broken Arrow he did Face Off and he seemed to be really sort of capturing uh, that the heroic gunplay style that he was like so renowned for and when you look at like Hard Target and stuff and then he sort of fell into this sort of chain of just bad projects like Wind Talkers and um and paycheck and then uh he basically just went back to hong kong and made red cliff and he's quite happy being with veered as the god he is i mean other directors like hido nakada park chan wook we've seen like one film from them before they returned so it'd be interesting to see if uh sion sono decides to obviously hang around and uh and make make more than this series yeah i mean you can add to that kimji you can add to oh Talking about Snowpiercer again, yeah. um, I, I think I think just the I think the system, um, I think the Hollywood system they find restrictive. I I went I went to a talk by um, Kim Ji Woon 
uh, and and people asking him about the, the he made the Arnie Arnold Schwarzenegger comeback film The Last Stand and he was trying to be very diplomatic but it was quite clear the level of control and upper interference that happens in Hollywood even for somebody who feels like that uh, you know, they would be able to operate in a in a more collaborative environment um it 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 was too creatively constrictive for them and so going back home and like you say being the homecoming hero and making really good films at a fraction of the cost but with twice the creative control um and you know and and you've got to remember how big that pan asian market is as as important as we might think hollywood is the chinese market and and the pacific rim market as a whole is is potentially bigger so we may i i suspect we may in the next sort of 30 40 years see a complete shift in power Mm. I have to obviously wonder if Takashi Miike had obviously been working in the the West uh, making films. Do you think he really would be on film 100 by now? Uh, uh, I'd be surprised he'd be on film three, frankly. <laughs> um, no. I mean, there are people. There are people. There are people who work with a, with a prodigious, prodigious output, but they are in. Uh, you know, you the the, the big directors. They make what a film every two years tops, mm. and they get paid so much. Do they have to? Um, and also, what it takes to make a film now. I mean, we, we know we've we've spoken before about how long it takes. All oh, they've announced this project, and then five years later, it turns up. Well, it isn't that they just turned up for the six months of making it? You know, just the amount of people involved i mean <laughs> the thing that always makes me laugh so we watch the credits now the end credits and you watch a western film and they can be 15 minutes and there can be a small town's worth of people involved in a film i was watching um i was watching a film from the 1950s the other day um uh, that, that's i was having to review for eastern kicks and um it had something like 10 people the credits were at the beginning, and it, it named all the actors, about seven technical people, and of course there are other people not being there, but you know what I mean? The, 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 you could make a film with a lot less than 10,000 people, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I mean, how do we feel? I mean, I forgot to mention this at the start, start of the show, but um, Takeshi Miike, Film 100, Blade of the Immortal. Um, how are we feeling about it? I'm excited because it seems like more of what we saw with uh, Harry Curie and, um, more importantly, 13 Assassins. Um, it's just, this seems to be 13 Assassins as shot through the lens of a Zoomie. It's, it's Takashi Mike adapting someone else's material and for me that's what he does best actually um his his manga and anime and even his book adaptations if we look at audition are fantastic um it's when you know or even when he's remade someone else's film in in the case of um the other two films that you mentioned um when he's given a structure to work along i think he's a much more uh, um, a much more successful director. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited. Oh, definitely. Um, 
Right. We are going to take a quick break now. Uh, when we return, though, we will be looking at our feature film uh, for this evening, which is uh, XD Hair Extensions. So this thing we want to do, what exactly is it? I think it's a podcast. I think he just made that word up. Well, anyway, what would it be about? Uh, it can be about those things we see in the things, you know, with the pictures and the acting, and sometimes Ryan Gosling. Oh, you mean films? Yeah, those. We can talk about those. And Ryan Gosling. <laughs> and what would we call it? Women who speak weirdly. Uh, ladies? Young ladies? All the single ladies? <laughs> oh, wait, I know. Oh, chicks with accents. Yeah, and we could use that song from the Beatles and that movie, Across the Universe. Cool. Yeah. Listen to the Across the Universe podcast, brought to you by the Chicks with Accents. Available just about everywhere. And we're back. You are still, of course, listening to the Asian Cinema Film Club coming to you live and proud on the That Moment In Podcast Network. If you've not done already, please do hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes, uh, or if you're just uh, following us through thatmomentin.com, um, we uh, obviously update on a monthly basis. So every month you will get a different film picked either by myself or Stephen as we continue our jaunt through the weird and occasionally wonderful world of Asian cinema. Um, tonight we are obviously looking at one of Stephen's picks and you decided to go with a Sion Sono movie. Um, I did, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, why this one? I mean, he's got an extensive back catalogue as we've discussed already but i mean you obviously decided to go for the killer hair extensions movie i did so i went for it for two reasons one is um uh, I, 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 clearly from from what you might have gathered from the first half i'm a huge fan of Sion sono um i wanted to avoid suicide club because i think that was a bit obvious um and i just felt this movie and I don't know what you'll end up thinking about it, <laughs> but I I think it's it kind of got lost. It kind of got lost because Love Exposure came after it, and that was hugely lauded by the by the sort of the cult and Japanese film lovers. Um, and it stars possibly one of the most famous Japanese faces of the modern age i just felt it was a really good sort of introduction although i will counter that by saying i don't think it's particularly representative of his work no this is certainly an odd film to say the least um the film the brief you're obviously not familiar with the the film it basically follows this aspiring hairdresser here played by chiaki kiriyami um, who is probably best known for most people as playing Gogo in Kill Bill. She also played Chigasaw in Battle Royale, so she was the the girl in the lovely yellow, yellow uh, running suit who also went and put a switchblade in a very uncomfortable place of one of the one of her fellow students. And here she is in a much more innocent role. Uh, she's obviously this aspiring hairdresser who becomes the infatuation of this man who sells hair extensions to the nearby salons, uh, unaware that the hair he's actually selling belongs to this corpse he's stolen 
whose hair continues to grow and because it is so beautiful and voluminous um he's just selling it as extensions at the same time sort of fueling his own bizarre fetishes uh because he's a trilophilic um and anyone who happens to have these extensions attached to him suffer these vivid uh flashbacks of the death suffered by the girl whose hair has been stolen and used for extensions and this of course drives people insane and as the film goes on it gets increasingly more bonkers to say the least um which we will obviously get to in a minute but i mean you were saying this film was kind of lost in the mix i can't help but feel that this was lost in the mix largely due to the changing of the guard when it came to distributors because obviously when this film came out tartan had just closed shop uh arrow was still coming to their stride so this was released on one of the smaller labels and i think it was sort of got lost because at the same time we were still caught up in this whole asian cinema asian cinema horror boom so it was just like another title uh sort of lost in the mix because i mean you had this you had like one miss call uh you had pulse there does seem to be this abundance of films, so this one kind of slipped through, much like The Isle, in many ways, or The Dollmaster. Yeah, well, actually, all, all good choices. But, um, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it came just at a time. Tartan was dying. Um, the interest in J-horror possibly was dying off a little bit. And um, when, you know, and people like Third Window were coming up... Um, and this this just missed just slipped under you're right i mean i've you know got a uk release but it's very bare bones <laughs> um it's, it's got eight scenes or something that's <laughs> that it's that's it that's its limit it's still a pretty good thing but it's it's a shame because it didn't build on the um on the potential star power of um um oh what's the name chiaki um and also it's fucking mental. <laughs> if you excuse my French, but it's a uh, it operates in two completely disparate tones, and the story sort of does come together in the end. But the whole crazy hair fetishist morgue owner, uh, morgue worker, along with hair sprouting corpse side of story and then a really sad story about child abuse frankly that goes alongside it um there's the weird opening where the they talk in this um over expository way don't they as as if it was some like terrible soap opera saying oh yes i'm now cycling down the road and i'm on my way to the job which i've had for the last two years and i'm going to meet my colleague who has been here three weeks you know and it's and it's like what is this this is this is mad as a bag of ferrets but at the same time that the mam the story about the young girl her her niece although she calls her a sister is um it's it's sickening really isn't it yeah, this film can never seem to figure out one particular tone. I mean, we obviously open as kind of a straight horror because we obviously have the um, the body being the body being discovered by customs agents in um, in a container, and it's basically this body, and it's the whole container is just full of hair, 
um, which kind of gives you a foresight to what's obviously going to come ahead. And then we're then into being introduced to uh, Yukio. Um, as I said, this is Kiriyami, and she's as charming as ever. I mean, it's it's fun to see her playing a non-psychotic role because everything we tend to see her playing is sort of a psychotic role. Um, so to see her playing such a an innocent and carefree character, I mean, as you said, she she's doing her own self-narration as she's running down the road, which I found kind of charming. And the fact that she at least bothers to explain it isn't like some some Asian aspects of Asian cinema where they're throwing some random thing and they won't bother to explain it because it's very Asian humour. Uh, no, it, it's, it's, from, it's, it's... It is explained. It, Yes, it, 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 it's, it's having a little poking a bit of fun at Asian dramas, basically, and they, they absolutely, you know, he's, and that's, that's the thing about Sono, I think, about a lot of his films have these sort of dual tracks going on. I mean, even um, even Suicide Circle, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it seems to have this, this comedy level where it's almost like a Rocky Horror Picture Show pastiche alongside some really disturbing stuff in terms of um in terms of the suicide so i i i find it's a it's a decent pair with that so in in that regard it, it feels very sono-esque yeah and certainly if we're talking about disturbing scenes the scenes of of the final memories of the the corpse girl um i got so bummed out during those whole sequences and it's it's really jarring really because we're kind of in this light-hearted mood yes it's a lot it's, it's very daft and it's very uh overacted and then we have these very sterile and cold moments of this girl who's basically been brought into this uh human organ trafficking ring and we see her basically being um killed and and dissected and her hair shaved off and it and it's absolutely horrific and it's all done by these masked surgeons who are basically naked a bar by surgical aprons and balaclavas so it's a really interesting look to begin with um and we were forced to watch this whole scene see like doesn't give us any sort of reprieve at all he's like forces us to watch this horrible scene and then we're back into more light-hearted but at this point it's sort of like no we're still trying to get over what we just seen there um, and you mentioned mentioned already, we've obviously then got this whole child abuse subplot that runs through the film as well, and it brought back uh, memories of um, Dark Water and the fact that we obviously have the divorce um, and the child custody storyline that's running through what is essentially a very traditional sort of ghost story. Um, yeah, I, I see that. Um, uh, although in Dark Water, that's what's driving the story yeah. that that's the, it's the story you know it's the story of lost lost parents and and things like that whereas this uh, there are there are there are links between you know that the, the poor girl who is the corpse is obviously being kidnapped and murdered for her organs and for her hair um so so that, that that's an abuse in and of itself and their mammy the young girl that the niece is being terribly abused by her mother which is our our lead character's um, sister, so so it is kind of there, um, but it's yeah it's so dual tone. I also have to ask. I mean, this film runs around the two hour mark, which I felt was a little excessive uh, here. Really, I mean, do we really need to have 
such a long film. I mean, this film could have been told in about an hour and a half. Um, I'm not sure where you would cut it, but there's certainly it felt that it didn't need to run as long as it did. I mean, I could almost have done without our um, hair fetishist. Um, I, I, I think it could have existed without him because um, that's a bit over the top and weird as well. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's, he's having a bit of a campy bounce around, but you know, the, the corpse could have existed in and of itself without that, and we could have had a, a more straightforward horror story um without him there it's so it's um and that i think that would have cut it down by at least 20 minutes and you and you're absolutely right aaron this is a hour and 20 minutes hour and a half story that's stretched out 20 minutes too long mm. i mean for myself it would be difficult to remove our hair fetishes uh yamazaki mainly because this being obviously being um an asian horror film and in this case, a vengeful ghost. We need someone for the ghost to take vengeance against. And he's the only logical target. Yes, we could obviously have the older sister who does meet a suitable demise earlier in the film, but we really um, we really needed for him to meet his demise just to sort of satisfy the the ghost uh, the ghost sort of need for revenge. Um, although, although he felt like he was in cahoots with the ghost most of the time that was i i actually found that when she turned on him because he was hurting the young child that almost came from nowhere um so that was yeah that i found that a bit odd so i've got another one for you okay the the hair salon in which yuko works in is called the gilles de ray hair salon gilles de ray was um a 15th century frenchman um, famous for being a, a serial child murderer, <laughs> and is actually the um, thought to be the inspiration for the the story of Bluebeard. Yeah, the the, the I call it fairy story with rabbit ears going on. Um, why would you name a hair salon <laughs> even in Japan, where they do love the old French, the French words after a child murderer, and you know thousands of children he was thought to have murdered? It was it's just weird. Uh, the only thing I can counter that with is how many barber shops do you see called Sweeney Todd's? This is and and I think you've just put the I think you've just. Um, just 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 put your finger on what the joke is and i i feel stupid for not getting it well i mean yes it's a, it's a bit of a more vague reference for uh what they call the salon on this film but yes sweeney told i mean it's sort of like the barber who murders people and then drops them into the butcher shop to be made into pies um that's what you're going to going to use the mark of customer service of course, here in Reading, where I live, we literally have a pie shop called Sweeney Todd's. Um, <laughs> the pies are very, very nice, but you do think that was a bit of a risky choice for a name. Oh, God. Yeah, as Brits, sure eat some crap. <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. Or we sure did, I think. Is, and that's probably part of the problem with our diet, is that we uh, we don't eat everything anymore. I don't know. I mean, I think how we obviously make these sort of like uh t- make these sort of statements on on asian culture through the cinema we watch um there's obviously a large portion of 
the world that obviously view Britain as still probably being somewhere around the 17th, 18th century. So they think we're still very much about eel pie and anything that they've, uh, it's all cobbled streets and their Cockney accents over here. So, Well, and I, I, I don't mean to bore the audience with my stories. I was in America 20 years ago. So in the, in the modern era, and um, I, I was staying on um, Long Island, and I got the train back from um, Manhattan, and got a taxi back because you can't walk anywhere. There's no there's no sidewalks or pavements, as we would say. And um, there's a lady driving the taxi, and she said to me, "Oh, I love your accent. Where are you from?" I said, "I'm from England." And I just thought, I won't complicate it. I'll just say I'm from near London. And she says, oh, yeah, it's foggy there all the time. And there's, wol- and there's wolves running around because her only frame of reference for England was American werewolf in London. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, and, and I'm guessing sometimes what our frame of reference for some of these cultures is exactly that, what we've seen in films. Yeah, um, I think it's, and I think it's the advantage of the fact that we actually get more variety in the Asian cinema we get now, because I think it's certainly helping to shape our opinion of obviously uh, life and culture in the East, especially when we look at Korean cinema. Korean cinema in particular is very socially satire and it's very of of the moment um, compared obviously to like Japanese and um, Chinese cinema or Hong Kong cinema, should I say. Um, but no, this is uh, this was certainly an odd one. I think even for for Sono, um, because it's so played so so traditionally as a as a horror film throughout, and then he allows himself these random little asides, such as when we're obviously seeing our, our hair fetishist, uh, uh, and he's basically rocking the corpse back and forth in a hammock. Um, and this is, he seems to have this full on friendship with this corpse for whatever reason. And he's super happy when its hair grows and he's just such an, an odd duck. You're surprised that anyone wants to buy hair from him. So, well, that is a, that is a bit weird because he turns up, doesn't he? With his, the hair extensions, the bells on for sale and, and other hairdressers do. Of course, yeah, the Gilles de Ray salon must have more employees They've got two chairs to cut two people's hair, and they have something like 11 employees. So he just turns up and sells them some some hair stuff. Um, but it sounded like he this, he... this is... It's not made very clear in the way that... But it sounds like this is what he does. And so when we first meet him in the morgue, he is cutting other corpses' hair off, isn't he? And he's, he's looking for the right hair. So I think that's what he does. But finding the, uh, the literal hair cornucopia corpse... Um, knocks him off the deep end a bit, turns him into a transvestite, and um, and then gives us one of the nuttiest de- uh, screen deaths I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I would, me, you probably led into my next sort of point. Um, the violence and gore in this film, it's light in the actual gore aspect. I mean, there's certainly some interesting things happening and hair growing out of unusual places. Um I mean, how did you actually find this? Because, I mean, in terms of, obviously, what we've seen from Sano, this is pretty light uh, as far as things go. Yes, it has those uncomfortable moments such as surgery sequences um, and the the final memories of the girl. Uh, But at the same time, the most uncomfortable thing I felt about the hair is just the fact it looks so grotty when there's so much of it. 
Whenever we it, have a scene where there's like a room full of hair, it just looks so unbelievably grotty. It does. And um, so it's funny you should say that because I read a few. I, I was doing a bit of um, background reading. So I hadn't seen it for a few years. So I rewatched it this week. Did a bit of background reading. A lot of people say hair isn't scary. Yeah, it's it's you know, <laughs> you know he's obviously making a point about about people modern culture and people adding bits of other people to themselves and what does that mean and you know that that, that that's probably where the, the poet in sono is going with it my youngest daughter if she sees hair that's not attached to somebody you know like in the plug hole yeah she vomits she has a strong physical reaction to hair i don't think i don't think she's the only person or a lot a lot of people don't like hair you know when it's like just cut on the floor or something like that and obviously I mean, you're a married man i'm sure your wife gets a bit stressed when she has a haircut it's quite a common thing so i think there are i think you and i maybe aren't the people who are going to be grossed out by the hair or the hair cutting or anything like that and i think i just wonder if there is i just wonder if there's another audience somewhere i mean the cgi is adequate shall we say it's interesting how the how yeah. the how the hair is animated. Um, there's certainly a charm to it as well because I, I, I mean, is it? Would you say it's stop motion? I mean, how was the hair? Well, but, well, bits of it seem to be stop motion. Then when it appears to be going under people's skin and coming out their eyeballs and tongues and <laughs> fingernails, it's um, I think it's more like CGI. But yes, it seems to be a mix, doesn't it, of of practical and and fairly low rent cgi effects but then there, i think some of the scenes you know there's there's the scene with the um the woman who she goes sort of back to her flat and her hair shoots out in all directions and lifts her up to the ceiling and then chucks her down on the floor and then it all disappears and i wasn't actually too sure if she died or not but i think she did yeah. um but that that sequence is quite impressive um certainly if you think of this as a as a I don't think it would have been quite as impressive on the on the big screen, but certainly on on my TV as a, as a DVD or video watch, I thought I thought there was enough interesting stuff there, mm. although it was variations on a theme. Well, I think the first scene where we see someone get possessed by the hair, um, and it's one of the hairdressers, and she's cutting this woman's hair, and she goes very close to her. Uh, oh, career with with a very sharp pair of scissors, and that had me me uh, gripping the sofa a little tight. Um, and I think that's going to be reflected in, in what I'm going to obviously choose one of my selections for the further viewing um, for for this particular film. So, yeah, I know it, it. It's not gory, so don't. It's not an extreme. It's not extreme Japanese horror in any way, shape, or form. It's it's a humorous film and it's winking at you most of the time with a with a but with a with a pretty dark underbelly um and i i i just think it i just think it is actually it's a complete outlier for sono in the sense that it's almost it's a bit like one missed call is for um mikey yeah it's 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 a perfectly good film and it's got lots of good stuff and lots of bad stuff but is it representative of their oeuvre no yeah i think there's definitely other films that i would recommend watching of us first i wouldn't use this as your benchmark to judge his work by 
Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely thinking of it more as a gateway than a benchmark. Um, he's made far better movies, but I think it's pretty accessible. Yeah, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna start with with Sunlight, I think starting with his later films. So really, anything around 2010 onwards, I would say, is going to be a good sort of starting point, and then work backwards uh, once you sort of get comfortable with styles. I mean, things such as like. Coldfish, uh, if you're feeling adventurous, then obviously, um, Love Exposures, uh, another particularly good one, or just Tokyo Tribal, Why Don't You Play in Hell? I know you don't like Why Don't You Play in Hell, but I think it's it's still a really fun one to start with. There's a lot of interesting, uh, movements and, and certainly bursts of color in that one to, uh, certainly make it, make it, uh, worth giving a look. No, I, I think of, um, Why Don't You Play in Hell very much in the similar vein to this film. It feels because it is actually based on a script he wrote back at the beginning of his career. Um, it, so it probably does. It, it, it's you know, it, it's again, it's another mad as a bag of ferrets film, but it, it's using tropes that we're aware of, and it's quite meta, isn't it? And um, it's a perfect. It's it's a perfectly good, if not great, film. Why don't you play in hell? It's just not one of my favourite of Sonos. That's all. Yeah. Um. Further viewing, I mean, where do you, where do you obviously go from uh, from here? I mean, it's it's a unusual film and certainly one that it's not the easiest to try and match up with something else. I think it's safe to say. Okay, well, I have got a film in mind. I think you might have already chosen it as a further viewing before, but I can't remember. Uh, I'm certainly planning to talk about it in a future episode, but I'm thinking sort of crazy experimental horror film, um, Japanese. How about Nobuhiko Obayashi's Haosu? Yeah, um, Haosu is definitely a very good choice. I think it's one that we're definitely going to be discussing uh on a future episode it's that is um a film which has got this this absolute wonderful legacy of being this bonkers horror film and when you start watching it it's so charming and delightful i mean the cat's eyes sparkle um and it's got such a nice warm glow and then it suddenly pulls the rug out from underneath you and turns into this absolute bonkers evil dead style horror film um yeah, I, I think if you if you want a crazy double Japanese double bill, and but you want to keep it um, on the on the right side of tasteful, um, I, I yeah I'd, I'd I'd match XD along with Halsu for sure. Cool. For myself, um, I mean, I would we've uh, mentioned uh, there's a couple of different options you could go. I mean. Uh, we mentioned already Dark Water, um, just obviously for that combination of uh, of that darker style, obviously with the, the child custody storyline uh, running underneath this uh, child's ghost story. But I have noted down to like two choices. Uh, one is actually not an Asian film; it's actually a Western short, um, and that's the stylist by Jill uh, Gever. I'm going to really apologise in advance because I'm really going to screw up her surname, but it's Jevargazian. Um, it's a little four-minute short um, revolving around, again, head and cutting. So I'm not going to say any more, but just uh, advice you go and check out the star list. The other 
film I want to obviously say would be Survive uh, Survive Style Five Plus, uh, yeah. directed by Jen uh, Sikiguchi. And this is a film which features five interconnecting storylines, um, including the this man who constantly tries to kill his wife only to find her alive again, um, a salary man who's convinced he's a bird, and most bizarrely of all, it features uh, Vinnie Jones um, appearing as this connecting thread between the five stories as he goes around with his translator, uh, played by uh, Yoshi, uh, Yoshi Yoshi Arakawa. Um, this is a truly bonkers film. Um, I've not really seen it more than a couple of times since it was being released, but certainly if you're looking for a mad film to play with another mad film, then uh, Survive Style 5 Plus would be uh, the way I would go. No, that's a good choice, and there, and and there is there is one other that I again I spoke about briefly last time when we were talking about manga adaptations um, would be the two thousand Akira Higuchi's um, Ujimaki, uh, the Junji Ito uh, adaptation, um, crazy lots of spirals, and that includes a bit of hair as well. Um, so I think any of those would make a Made a suitable pairing with uh, with XD. Cool. Um, and that brings us to the end of uh, another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. We hope, as always, you've enjoyed it uh, listening to this evening. Again, uh, please come like us on the Facebook page. Uh, let's share your thoughts on Asian Cinema. We try to put something up uh, every day or so. Um, we like to share trailers and different bits of. Uh, film that uh, we find so uh, plenty happening over there you can also find us over on thatmomentin.com as part of the podcast network um, and if you haven't done already uh, hit the subscribe button either on Podomatic or iTunes whether you prefer uh, chosen method of listening to the podcast is and uh, you know maybe leave us some comments or a nice rating it uh, all helps uh, move the show forward but obviously next week we are going into Halloween and we are going to be celebrating all things Asian horror by having a very special guest on. And we are going to be holding our first ever draft here on the show as we are going to be competing against each other to see who can come up with the best five film draft for Asian horror. Um, and I'm don't know about you, Stephen, but I'm kind of interested to see which way you go, whether you're going to play it safe, whether we're going to go into some, like real deep cuts. Um because uh i mean as i said asian cinema asian horror in particular is sort of one of those genres that we don't seem to talk about as much anymore it was like the real in thing when we had this revival of interest and now we all just seem to want to watch classy sort of fair rather than just watching uh asian horror yeah well i mean the, the the joy of it is is a bit like we were talking about last week when we talk about the manga and the anime and the fact that there's such a widespread of it is that we could go hong kong cat 3 we could go guinea pig level hardcore japanese or we could go somewhere in the comedy horror vein which might be where i end up <laughs> because, but um you know and then i think that's that's the point there will be some classics i'm sure us and our special guest will pick on some known classics but i will try very hard to find a couple of deeper cuts and maybe some light fare myself cool 
Um, obviously, in the meantime, if people want to come and read your stuff, Stephen, where can they find you? Um, well, you can find my writing at easternkicks.com um, and my own blog at uh, guelloramblings.wordpress.com. But I've got to be honest, haven't done much recently. Plan to sort that out. Cool. Um, as for myself, as always, it's uh, from the depths of DVD hell.blogspot.co.uk. Um, and I'm currently obviously still working on stuff uh, for that moment in .com. The movie tourist series is still going well. Uh, we recently posted the the latest entry being for NORAD in the film War Games. So we were talking about hackers and killer computers. We are going to be looking at Kung Fu Hustle in the next entry, uh, where we obviously look uh, be looking at Stephen Chow's sort of last major film for Western audiences uh, before he sort of disappeared back to Hong Kong and uh, now sort of uh, is sort of below the radar for most uh, most Hollywood viewers. But it's going to be obviously be fun to obviously go back and look at some of the interesting casting choices that he made with uh, Kung Fu Hustle and uh, just uh, get into uh, the whole the whole uh, scene scene there and uh, exploring the secrets that film hides. So. Um, but uh, thank you as always for listening and uh, thank you to my co-host Stephen it's a pleasure as always, thank you for having me and uh, we will be back next time with our Asian Horror Draft but until next time, good night. hey hey